Every business should have access to high-speed internet, no matter where they are. But getting fast speeds in rural Canada hasn't always been easy, which meant less reliability, scalability, and connectivity. ExploreNet Enterprise Solutions has the network to help you do business virtually anywhere in Canada. With extensive fiber, fixed wireless, and satellite networks, we're bringing the high speeds of the big city to small towns, to tiny towns, and even no towns. No matter your business size or location, get connected today with ExploreNet Enterprise Solutions. Are you ready to clear a new path? Welcome to Clearing a New Path podcast, a space for the underrepresented voices of women entrepreneurs in rural Canada. I'm your host, Shauna Ray. Each episode, guests will speak authentic truth because it's the truth that connects us. Each one inspires us all to take up space within our own communities and within the business world, reminding us that each path can be messy and unique. Join us on the journey, clearing a new path. Lynette Mater was raised in rural Middlesex County. She got her career start with a job as public relations manager for Turkey Farmers of Canada in Mississauga, and from there took a marketing job at what was then Cold Springs Farm in Thamesford. This brought her back to the London area where she met her husband, one of the owners of Belmere Country Market and Winery. She left Cold Springs Farm to work in the family business, until the business was sold, and then she accepted a marketing manager position at Ducks Unlimited Canada's Barrie, Ontario office. Since that somewhat abrupt right turn into an environmental career in 2002, she has held many positions, including overseeing landowner stewardship programs and starting Ducks Unlimited Canada's first consulting initiative in Ontario to raise funds for conservation. In 2014, she accepted the position of Manager of Provincial Operations, becoming the first woman in Ducks Unlimited Canada to land a provincial management position. She's been a member of the Species at Risk Program Advisory Committee, co-chaired a provincial wetland advisory panel, was a member of a wetlands technical advisory group, a member of the Protected Areas Working Group, and was Vice Chair of Ontario's Climate Change Advisory Panel. Currently, she is participating on the Rural Ontario Municipal Association's Attainable Housing Task Force. Lynette is passionate about rural quality of life and ensuring Ontarians can continue to enjoy natural spaces. When she's not advocating for nature and wildlife habitat, 
She is equally passionate about dementia advocacy and improving the long-term care experience for seniors. Okay, Lynette, where do you hail from? Where in rural or remote Canada are you? Well, right here, I'm tuning in from the metropolis of Craighurst, Ontario, affectionately called The Hurst by uh, myself and all my neighbours. It's a tight-knit little community of uh, just a small enclave of four corners, just north of the city of Barrie, but northwest of Barrie, and about an hour and a bit north of Toronto. Lynette, you have had some very interesting twists and turns in your professional career. How did your professional life and maybe your personal life too lead you to where you are today? Thanks. I love that question because it's it's a fun story that I enjoy telling. My career path has been the flight of the bumblebee. It's, it's just <laughs> over here, over there. That looks good over there. I'm going to try that. You know, and it's deeply connected to my personal roots. I was raised on a farm in southwestern Ontario. So I was born and raised in Middlesex County, born in Strathroy Hospital. And uh, my dad was a turkey farmer. And he got into that business um, the hard way. Um, He worked so hard and was such an inspiration. He had nothing growing up and he was a self-made man. So I had that uh, as my inspiration. And he really built himself up. Um, had a number of turkey farms and was uh, a large cash crop farmer in Middlesex County. And I had that as my my backdrop for the most formative years, you know. And those were the days, I'll be dating myself here, but, uh, you know, back in the, the early 1970s, you know, mom would kick us out the door in, you know, on a Saturday morning and she really didn't want to see us again until supper time. And we would, we would just make our own way and so adventurous, um, you know, traipsing across the countryside. We used our our own two feet to get where we needed to go or our bicycles. A country mile was nothing to a country kid on a bike. So um, so really an idyllic childhood. Uh, It was actually uh, in the village of Nairn, just outside of London. And it's interesting in the the waterfowl world, the Ducks Unlimited Canada world, where I live and and breathe and work now, there's a thing called natal site fidelity. And that's where the hen returns to her nesting site year after year. And often her ducklings will come back to the same place. And I think it's inherent in people, particularly people who have been raised in the country as well. I gravitate back to that area. I mean, I do have a lot of relatives there still, so that's a good reason to go. But I gravitate back there all the time. It still uh, has a really strong place in my heart. So, you know, growing up on the farm, I uh, I had that kind of connection to the agricultural landscape, to the uh, pastoral landscape, and to nature, because there was, uh, fortunately, Middlesex County has, has a good abundance of natural spaces still, and I hope that uh, it stays that way. And so I could explore and and discover things. But so that gave me a real interest in nature and the environment. But that's not how I got started in my career. I uh, was always interested in journalism and thought Mm -hmm. I wanted to be a writer. So, but I also loved languages. A trip to Mexico gave me an absolute passion for all, you know, all things Latin and the Latin culture. And I wanted to learn Spanish. So I actually, uh, I went to Trent University, not to 
study the environment, as everybody thinks, because I work in the environment industry now, but to study languages. And that gave me the opportunity to do a year abroad. So I did my third year in Spain and graduated with a Bachelor of Arts in Spanish, which got me absolutely nothing in terms of a job. <laughs> I wasn't qualified <laughs> to do anything. I couldn't even get a job at the embassy. My Spanish was good, but not good enough for that. So I thought, uh-oh, I need, to, I need to do something here. So I went back to school and I got a postgraduate diploma in corporate communications. And that gave me my, my first career start. And I went to work for, not surprisingly, the Canadian Turkey Marketing Agency. Uh, my dad has, <laughs> was heavily involved in the industry. So I was able to get a start there as a public relations manager and spent a few years there. And then I was really inspired by, at that time, um, the owner of Cold Springs Farm, which it was a large processing operation just in outside of London in Thamesford, Ontario. And uh, the owner was on the board of directors and I, I was kind of inspired by sort of that company and his vision and uh, thought, you know, I'd like to go work for that company. And he didn't have a job for me at the time, but a year later, I got a call out of the blue and he said, you know, I think we've got some space for you in, in our marketing department if you'd like to come work for us. So I thought that's pretty cool. Didn't think twice, made the jump, moved to London, Ontario and uh, worked in marketing in a poultry process operation for a few years. And then I married into a quite a successful farm market and winery. So that was Bellamere Country Market and Winery, just outside of London in Hyde Park. And uh, that was super exciting. Learned everything there was to know about the farm market business and pick your own strawberries. At that time, the owner, my brother, well, there were three owners, um, but the, the manager, my brother-in-law, was busy building a fruit winery. So I got to work in the winery for a bit. Oh, so I, I made the jump from Cold Springs to go work for the family business and uh, spent uh, a few years there. And then after a while, for a variety of different reasons, um, Bellamere Country and Market, the family lo was looking to, to sell it. So I thought, uh oh, okay, need a, need a new job. And I applied for the job at Tax Unlimited Canada. And based on really largely my agricultural background, because Ducks Unlimited Canada does a lot of work in rural and agricultural landscapes, uh, I got the job with no environmental background whatsoever. So, you know, my career path has been a series of, of good people taking a chance on me because I really didn't have a ton of experience for any of the jobs that I landed, but people took a chance on me. So that's, that's been really rewarding. Wow, that is a really <laughs> awesome story. No, it is. No, but I, I mean, each each one had a thread to the next, right? Like it, it, yes, it, it yeah. made sense. And what a learning journey. Tell us about what Ducks Unlimited is and what you do. Because I will be honest, when I was younger, I thought that that, you know, Ducks Unlimited was for anglers and hunters, which is not the case necessarily. Please explain. <laughs> Ducks Unlimited Canada is a wetland conservation company and it definitely is strongly supported by anglers and hunters um, because they recognize the importance of habitat conservation to the activities that they enjoy. But here in Ontario, um, 
we've long recognized that wetlands provide a lot more than, you know, the recreational benefits associated with hunting. They're really, really important to, you know, water quality, to flood attenuation, to climate resilience. Um, and so we, we factor in all of those things. But what we actually do is we go out on the landscape and we physically restore wetland habitat. So we're literally putting wetlands back on the landscape. We also work with private landowners and the provincial and federal governments to protect wetlands. So um, we'll work with private landowners who have wetlands on their property, existing wetlands already, to encourage them to steward those wetlands. We'll provide maybe wood duck nest boxes to get them engaged and active and enjoying their wetlands. And then they'll sign a concert, a voluntary, it's all entirely voluntary, they'll sign a conservation agreement with our organization that says that they will not do anything to harm um, that wetland for the period of the conservation agreement. So we're all about conserving the habitat. We don't advocate um, on hunting policy unless it's something that relates specifically to wetland conservation. But um, definitely the, the hunting community does support us and we're, we're grateful for that support. Land stewardship obviously is a big part of what you're doing. And we know that in 2015, uh, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission came up mm -hmm. with some calls to action for Canadians. How is Ducks Unlimited answering those calls to action? We'd like to think that we're bringing nature back to the landscape. And increasingly, because so much land in southwestern, southern Ontario and southwestern Ontario is privately owned, we're almost always working with private landowners. And because of that, our opportunities to restore nature to the landscape have been very opportunistic. If a landowner is willing to work with us, yay, we'll go and we'll try and do something if all the conditions are right for are correct for a wetland restoration project. Increasingly, though, um, and this was the thing that I was really uh, hoping to talk about today, we're trying to be more strategic in how we do that. And rather than just go restore a wetland here, restore a wetland there, yes, there will definitely be waterfowl benefits and wildlife benefits and even some water quality and, and potentially flood attenuation benefits. Those benefits will be so much more if we can actually restore ecosystems. Um, so if we could use wetland restoration to reconnect natural heritage features, so, you know, uh, a patch of forest here and a patch of natural area there, if we can actually restore the space in between so that we're creating a, a linear or a lateral system of natural heritage features. And a natural heritage feature could be wetlands, grasslands, trees, a stream, a river, um, any of those types of things that we all like to enjoy. If we can restore connectivity to those features on the rural landscape, the rural landscape will be that much better off. And most importantly, you know, we're talking to municipalities now. We hosted some regional workshops, and now we're talking to municipalities one-on-one -on -one to, you know, help us understand where their targeted areas are for growth. And let's get in there and let's restore those systems. Let's restore that connectivity so that as their settlement areas grow or fill in within the settlement boundary, 
we're building around these systems and not through them and cutting them off permanently. And, you know, if we can do that, that takes a bit of vision and, and commitment, but it's entirely possible. And it just makes so much sense. And if we can do that, then we'd be creating communities that are so much more livable. The type of community that, that people, the type of community that people really want to live in, because if the pandemic has shown us anything, it's demonstrated that Ontarians crave nature. Our natural spaces were overrun during the past two years. And there was all sorts of challenges with um uh, people trekking through areas that, you know, maybe they shouldn't have been or parking along roads to get to natural spaces. And it just pointed out that, that we need so much more of this. And if we can have it in our communities, because one of the big problems is right now, a lot of the natural spaces we enjoy in Southern Ontario are user pay. We need to pay to use them and we need to jump in our cars and drive there to get to them. So why not build communities that have these spaces in them? We don't have to jump in our cars. They're part of of our backyards and we can walk through a gate, get to it and enjoy it right in our own community. Just There's just no downside that I can see. So provincial parks is what you're talking about, I think, right? Like, I mean, yeah, the paint and conservation areas increasingly. Right. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So what are the barriers in, in rural communities then? I mean, I can think of, you know, land ownership, uh, whether yeah. the municipality actually has ownership of that and whether it's privately owned and whether there's a family legacy where they want, you know, development and all of those things. So how do you work within those I would say colonial, of course, colonial capitalist mm-hmm. systems to try to move what you want forward, what you're talking about. How do you do that? Well, there's a variety of pro- approaches and sort of a variety of steps. If we focus first on the rural settlement area, uh, through their official planning process, they'll know where that settlement boundary is. They've identified it. There may be talks to expand it or not, but often they're not built out to that boundary. And if they are, they, they, they may be looking at expanding it. But if they're not built out, then we look within that boundary and we look at the areas to restore, restore connectivity. And then we look at land ownership. Okay, who owns that? Now, often within a settlement boundary, that land might already be owned by a developer or it might be a farmer, a local farmer or um, other types of, of residential houses. And we would simply just approach the landowner. And the good news is, is that rural landowners are very increasingly stewardship minded. We can't keep up with demand for our program on the Southern Ontario landscape. So I think, you know, and we work predominantly in the farming community. So farmers are really recognizing the benefits of wetland restoration um, and they're recognizing their role in phosphorus retention. So not allowing that phosphorus or any kind of nutrients to, to, you know, run off their fields and into that farm drain and down into the local water course and into our Great Lakes. So they really recognize their role in, in, uh, in stewardship around that. So they've really embraced wetland restoration in those low-lying, more marginal areas. And that offers us really good opportunities for connectivity because often, you know, there will be a natural feature above and below and between the farm drain and the wetland restoration. Um, and there will be buffers on either side of the drain. We can create a really nice natural area to capture that water before it gets into into our lakes and rivers and and drinking water systems. So it's an approach of rural land owner stewardship. So talking to that rural land owner one-on-one, but it also requires commitment from the development community. And that's one of the 
that's one of the bigger hurdles right now, I think. There are great developers out there who are progressive and I think would be interested in building a really exemplary community, the type of community with natural spaces that Ontarians, Ontarians really want to live in. Right now, when a residential development is built, the developer will go in and they'll raise the land. And they do that because they need to put in infrastructure. So almost all rural settlement areas will require any new development to have, you know, go on municipal services, which is important because um, that reduces the, that can help reduce the footprint of the development as well as, you know, help protect our, our source water. So that's an important requirement. But in order to do that, they have to go in and take everything out and then they put in all the infrastructure and then they spend millions, um, you know, on stormwater solutions to, to deal with that water that they know is going to come. So they've taken out, you know, all of the natural cover, which would offer a lot of flood attenuation properties, um, as well as, you know, help with carbon footprint and, and, and uh, water quality and overall climate resilience, extreme heat. That natural cover helps mitigate against all of those things. But right now, with the way we build our infrastructure, they go in, they take it all out, and then they spend millions to put in, you know, built infrastructure that has to deal with all of the things that they know will happen because we've taken out all the natural cover. It's really counterintuitive. It, you you know, so I think there's there will be progressive developers out there who can recognize that and say, hey, you know, we can build differently. Um, let's leave some of that natural cover there and build around it. And let's leave it strategically where we know it will provide some of the best benefits around climate resilience. And that's all those things like water quality, flood attenuation, help mitigation from extreme heat, which um, is on the on the rise. And whether you believe in climate change or not, we're experiencing extreme weather events and and that's a given and we will continue to experience extreme weather events so natural cover helps we humans deal with all of that and it's important to keep it so really i think the big job is to work with these developers to to get a commitment to to restore to keep natural cover as they're building rather than take it all out to put their infrastructure in and certainly the technology must be there to to do that um i'm fortunate to live in a community that could potentially be an example there is uh, a uh, development proposal behind me for i think it's 300 homes they did come in and take out a whole swath of forest but the interesting thing that happened in the township um certainly worked with this them around this because uh they've protected it in their secondary planning process but behind me is environmentally protected land because there's a creek there but there's also a natural corridor that connects the next creek system. Now, often a developer would come in and just take out that corridor. So now those two creeks are disconnected, but the municipality um, protected that corridor that connects those two creeks through their environmental protection zoning as part of a secondary planning process. And so that's what I would encourage all rural municipalities to do. If you haven't done it already, there will be a countywide official planning process, but that little settlement area within the county, it will need a secondary planning process if it's planning to embrace residential development. And we need to do that. We need to embrace some residential development because we need places to live in rural Ontario. Yeah, you and I talked about that a little earlier, and I've had a, a previous guest on who spoke specifically about preparing 
rural communities for impending immigration. The federal Mm -hmm. government has lofty targets for newcomers to Canada, uh, and the federal government is encouraging uh, newcomers to settle in rural spaces, but yet Mm -hmm. the communities aren't ready with the programming and the infrastructure to be welcoming enough. There isn't enough housing. And so we're seeing a scramble, if you will. And and I what I can see is because people want to get it done quickly and you know they want developers to come in and, and put up housing. Exactly. It, yeah. it, and I mean it can't just be more of the same very expensive housing. Mm-mm. There's got to be, you know, a variety of structures with a variety of costs. And so looking at all of those things as a municipality, I can see that it wouldn't be their priority to, you know, include a, a second planning, um, you know, schedule or a, you know, environmental scan or any mm-hmm. of those things. So how do you encourage municipalities to slow down and think about it? Yeah, and it's like it's exactly that. It's overwhelming. Looking at all those things, you know, feels overwhelming. And the municipality may think, "Oh, we don't have the time or energy for a secondary plan." But it's because of all those things, and because it is overwhelming, that you need the secondary plan. Because the secondary plan is what guides and provides some what is what provides guidelines for all of those things coming in. With uh, you know, and I think that. There is so much opportunity for rural Ontario to show urban Ontario how they should have done it. There is just such an opportunity for rural Ontario to get it right and to build really livable communities that Ontarians want to live in and create opportunity um, for, for immigration and for cultural diversity, because certainly we need that. It's uh, it's there's a huge opportunity to to get it right, and you know to I think if the secondary plan helps ensure there's room for everybody, because one of the things that we'll hear from the farming community is a concern over loss of farmland. So let's yeah. not pave over class one farmland. That's not going to help anybody. Um, but I think there is some understanding in the farming community that perhaps you know uh, the more marginal areas. Um, are the types of, of areas that could be included um, for development proposals. And certainly uh, municipalities have identified where growth can and should occur. That's definitely been part of the overarching official planning process. But then you need that secondary plan to say, okay, we've, you know, I'll use Elsie Craig as an example. Elsie Craig needs more homes. Here's where they can go. Here's some, envir- you know, natural heritage features that we should protect because that's an important part of that community. Hey, here's some areas where we can restore that connectivity and we'll grow around it. And, you know, if we end, we need a mix of housing. So not big, you know, McMansions, no monster homes, or, you know, if there's a few of them, let's also include affordable, attainable housing. Affordable means different things to different people. So I was uh, really honored to be invited on the Rural Ontario Municipal Association Attainable Housing Task Force. And we've really focused on, okay, let's talk about attainable housing, because um, that means something 
that means that anyone can attain a house, people from all different sort of economic walks of life. So we need a mix of attainable housing. It might be townhomes, maybe it's cooperative homes. There's all sorts of creative solutions around that that we're talking about uh, at the task force level. But uh, we need attainable housing. We need that mix so that some of those folks that are immigrating and they default to the urban centers because that's where the perception of the opportunity and the jobs are. They see opportunity in rural communities and uh, they come there and, you know, we embrace that and we start to achieve that cultural diversity. I just get really excited thinking about the potential for rural settlement areas. And, you know, Indigenous engagement is obviously an important part of that. There's so much opportunity to learn and uh, incorporate incorporate traditional knowledge and and then learn and learn from Indigenous peoples as we do this, particularly around the stewardship of those natural spaces and the restoration of the connectivity. You mentioned Ontario, but Ducks Unlimited is a national organization, correct? Yeah, it is. Yes. Yeah. And so are, are you doing programs all over Canada? Two? Absolutely. So right across Canada, um, we're heavily invested in wetland restoration. It looks very different in different provinces. And it's certainly been a two-decade-long learning experience for me. Wetland restoration here in Ontario looks very different from wetland restoration in the prairies, largely Mm. as a result of land values. Um, You know, in southwestern Ontario, an acre of farmland might go from anywhere like 16,000 to 21,000, 25,000. I don't know in this market an acre. In Western Ontario, that might be 1,600, 2,100 an acre, huge difference. So there's actually a lot more opportunity um, to protect lands through acquisition or do large wetland restoration projects in Western Ontario. In Southern Ontario, we're really focused on um, smaller wetland projects that do have a lot of value. And uh, working collaboratively with stewardship-minded landowners. Without those private landowners, we couldn't do what we do. So it really requires that stewardship ethic, which fortunately we're, we're seeing out there. So do you have a team that goes into a community or, or is part of a, a project? That's how it works. I, I'm trying to imagine how many people you would have on a team that would do something like that. We're super small and efficient. We're all about working collaboratively in local communities. So often um, the wetland restoration opportunities are brought to us by a local stewardship group or the local mm. conservation authority. And uh, and they'll bring us in. And then we'll, ha- we'll have a team of field staff that will assess that particular opportunity. Um, they'll bring their technical expertise to the table to say, yeah, the soil conditions are right. The hydrology is right. We employ engineers and biologists to, to tell us those things. Engineering technologists will come out, survey the land, understand how that water will flow, come down across the land, and what type of activity needs to take place, whether it's a shallow excavation or the building of a small berm to hold that water back as it comes down across that property to create that wetland habitat. Um, and then we'll provide funding to do that. And often it's uh, matched by the local community. So conservation authorities and other local stewardship groups will have uh, pots of funding that they draw from. We bring our funding to the table. They match it with theirs. And there's very little cost to the landowner. So I think that that is um, something that 
people would want to know <laughs> that yes, that there yeah. is funding available to do that. Because all I can think is dollar signs when I think about, you know, building a berm and, you know, all mm-hmm. of those things. Um, just even moving land, moving dirt, moving, you know, anything is, is cost, can be costly. So... Yeah, it's good yeah, to it know. It is, and it's and it's overwhelming. And there's very few landowners who would know how to even get started on something like that. And that's where we come in. But I think the other interesting point is we also hire local contractors. So we're these are really these these are authentic green jobs. So you think of construction contractors who are very accustomed to large commercial or residential development projects, a lot of cement and pavement. They get pretty excited when they come out and do a project with us because it's uh, that's a green job, but it's it's heavy equipment. We're bringing heavy equipment onto the property to do that excavation, to build that burn, to put that spillway in. And by that's almost always local jobs. So that's kind of cool. We're bringing our dollars to local communities to hire local contractors to do this work. I just wanted to verify again. So we're talking national though, right? Like, so somebody yes. from Anywhere in Canada can approach uh, Ducks Unlimited about even just have an assessment. Just say, yes. you know, are we doing as much as we can as far as land stewardship in this particular project? Yes, absolutely. So we have offices in every province uh, across Canada. And the programs will be different, um, but definitely as a first point of contact to say, hey, I've got this property, I'm trying to understand what to do here, Ducks Unlimited Canada can provide that service. Is there anything else you'd like to tell us about? I think, you know, maybe I'll just wrap it up in a bow to describe the perfect vision of uh, a rural Ontario community. And I think it's, it's a village that has identified appropriate areas for growth, builds a mix of attainable housing, um, has restores its natural infrastructure to capture that water that they know will come from those impermeable surfaces as, as they, they create more development, um, but also provides natural spaces in which the people who live in that settlement area can recreate so that they don't have to jump in their cars and drive to, to go enjoy and experience nature. And in doing so, by you know building more attainable housing, that rural settlement area will be attracting more cultural diversity and will have a much more vibrant village and uh, with lots of opportunity for everyone. And that is a type of community that I would really love to live in. And it just takes planning. And I would like to add that, you know, we definitely have financial support for um, stewardship-minded rural landowners, but for municipalities as well. So mm-hmm. call us. We'll help you identify where you can restore natural heritage features through wetland conservation, restore connectivity to those ecosystems, and we'll bring resources to the table to help you do that. So exciting. And I love what you said that rural can show urban how it should be done because I really yeah. do believe that we can make such a big difference in rural Canada. And um, like you said, it starts with the planning part. So thank you so Mm -hmm. much, Lynette, for uh, joining me today. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Shauna. I love this opportunity. I really appreciate having this opportunity and I love talking to you today. Thanks for this. If you like this episode, please subscribe, 
rate it, and leave a review. It really helps others find us. Clearing a New Path podcast artwork is supported by the graphic design of Katie Wilhelm, and the music branding is by Imagine a Dev Studios. The podcast is produced by Radar Media in Temp Centre, Ontario. It is the traditional territory of the Anishinaabe, Haudenosaunee, and neutral peoples who once used this land as their traditional beaver hunting grounds. The First Nations communities closest to this studio are Chippewa of the Thames First Nation, Oneida Nation of the Thames, Muncie, Delaware First Nation, and the Chippewas of Kettle and Stony Point. We will speak to many people across Turtle Island, and as a settler here, I'm committed to deepening understanding of Indigenous communities and reframing responsibilities to land and community. I am grateful to Mother Earth for the opportunity for love and connection, and to the spirits of the elders and the medicine people who still walk the earth. Until next time. this episode, please subscribe, rate it, and leave a review. It really helps others find us. Clearing a New Path podcast artwork is supported by the graphic design of Katie Wilhelm, and the music branding is by Imagine a Dev Studios. The podcast is produced by Radar Media in Temp Centre, Ontario. It is the traditional territory of the Anishinaabe, Haudenosaunee, and neutral peoples who once used this land as their traditional beaver hunting grounds. The First Nations communities closest to this studio are Chippewa of the Thames First Nation, Oneida Nation of the Thames, Muncie, Delaware First Nation, and the Chippewas of Kettle and Stony Point. We will speak to many people across Turtle Island, and as a settler here, I'm committed to deepening understanding of Indigenous communities and reframing responsibilities to land and community. I am grateful to Mother Earth for the opportunity for love and connection, and to the spirits of the elders and the medicine people who still walk the earth. Until next time.